Asymmetrical Haircuts, Justice Update, with Janet Anderson and Stephanie Vandenberg, in partnership with justiceinfo.net. Hi, Steph. Hi, Janet. So I was really wondering what we could uh, add to the, you know, real cacophony of uh, noises around, I think it's about three weeks long now, war that's been going on between Israel and Hamas. I mean, and it's not only a cacophony, and I really understand people feel very passionately about this, but also an enormous amount of really interesting commentary on this. And if you weren't an expert on international humanitarian law before this war started, and if you spend any time on Twitter, then you probably feel that you are. I'd spent a bit of time putting together what I thought might be interesting, I hope. But uh, before we get going, I thought it might be interesting for the audience to know what you as journalist for Reuters, not based there, not, not doing stuff there, but somebody who works in this field, what have you had to work on during these uh, this last week or two? Well, I've been, of course, keeping a close eye on the ICC, which is one of the courts that has potential jurisdiction. And I've also fielding a lot of questions about what constitutes violations of international humanitarian law and what could the court look at. You're one of the experts. You're one of the people. You're not out there on Twitter making your voice heard there, but you are informing behind the scenes, your colleagues at Reuters. I'm informing behind the scenes. One of the things that my colleagues in London were most interested about now, apart from the incidents you point to, was what's up with this proportionality? And I know we're going to talk about that as well. So that is something that I also had to dive into. Okay, but maybe uh, in true Reuters and Staphopedia style, before we get fully going, you should remind us, uh, what are the elements that you always have to put into every story? What do we need to know for context? What I usually do when I write a story is I look up the latest numbers of casualties. So what's the, the regular number we're recording now on... Um, Tuesday, the 31st of October. And I know that the figures are changing all the time, but uh, what is it that uh, the background you have to put into most uh, Reuters stories? Uh, The most recent numbers that I can see is that the Gazan health officials say that over 8,000 people were killed in the Gaza Strip, including 3,400 or more than 3,400 minors. And we always put in the deadly Hamas attacks where Israel says that 1,400 people were killed and there were 240 hostages taken. Uh, Just as I was finishing putting together and editing the elements for this podcast, up popped the International Criminal Court's prosecutor, Karim Khan, the border between Israel and Egypt, the Rafah crossing. And then he went back to Cairo to give a press statement and he said this. And we cannot and must not lose sight of the fact that there are laws that govern the conduct of hostilities. There's no blank check. It's not a case that one can do whatever one wants to pursue a particular objective. So he wasn't only reminding people that there is an ICC investigation, as you'd already mentioned, Steph, but maybe you can just, again, give us the Stephopedia version. What do we need to know about this ICC investigation? Well, the ICC accepted Palestine as a state for the purpose of membership in 2015. And the Palestinian authorities later did a referral of the case, so the situation in Palestine, as uh, the ICC calls it, referring alleged crimes from 2014 onwards. And the then prosecutor, Fatou Ben Souda, asked judges to rule if they felt the court did have jurisdiction for an investigation because of the contested status of Palestine. 
And in 2021, judges said, yes, Palestine is a state for the purposes of the ICC, or is a state as far as the ICC is concerned, you must open an investigation, and the prosecutor did. So since 2021, we have an open investigation into the situation of Palestine, as the ICC calls it, and that includes alleged crimes committed on the territory of Palestine, and for the purposes that we're talking about today, also alleged crimes by Palestinians. Yeah, and we covered that in uh, last podcast, if people want to uh, remind themselves. But also at that uh, press conference that Khan gave, he not only talked about his own investigation, but reminded the audience in general that there are laws of war and that the people who advise the military, particularly in the Israeli side, are also subject to these laws of war. Israel has a professional and well-trained military. They have, I know, military advocate generals and a system that is intended to ensure their compliance with international humanitarian law. They have lawyers advising on targeting decisions and they will be under no misapprehension as to their obligations or that they must be able to account for their actions. They will need to demonstrate that any attack any attack that impacts innocent civilians or protected objects must be conducted in accordance with the laws and customs of war, in accordance with the laws of armed conflict. They need to demonstrate proper application of the principle of proportionality, of protection, and of the principle of distinction. And when I heard that, I thought, oh my God, that's it. That's the podcast. That's exactly what I've just spent the last three days putting stuff together around. And it's just summarised by the prosecutor. There are military lawyers. It's interesting to think about what role they play. I thought, should we do this podcast at all? But I decided, OK, let's keep running through it. We've got some interesting comments from different people and uh, thought that we could add in the specifics that we know and what we don't know about what military lawyers do. And so for that, we contacted two academics, Ori Pomsen, who has served with the Israeli Defense Force as an advisor on cyber affairs and is now doing his PhD in Cambridge, and Adil Haq, who teaches international law at Rutgers in New York. So I started off by asking, does it really matter if you describe a war as existential, as absolute, as you absolutely have to do it? Does that mean that some of the rules of law can just go out of the window or do they always apply? So here's Adel. International humanitarian law always applies equally to all parties to a conflict, irrespective of the justice or injustice of their cause, the importance or unimportance of what they're fighting for. So IHL applies to Russia, it applies to Ukraine, it applies to Israel, it applies to Hamas. And that's partly because of the moral importance of these rules. They exist to protect civilians who have the same moral standing irrespective of the war in which they're caught up. Uh, but also simply by design, these rules are called the law of war for a reason. They were designed for a large-scale armed conflict. They were designed for circumstances in which the very existence of a state might be threatened or the freedom of a people from oppression might be at stake. Uh, so that's what they're designed for. So they apply in those contexts for that reason too. So just to say that uh, Ori also agreed that, of course, international humanitarian law applies. We can, if we wanted to, run through some of the main elements, just as Kareem Khan did. But 
at the heart of all of the arguments that I've seen written online and the discussions I've been having is this real fundamental disagreement on Israel's war aims. And depending on how you see those, that can be used to essentially justify some of the attacks on civilians or not. They're not attacks on civilians, but the deaths of civilians during the attacks. This is the biggest criticisms that we see of Israel, that Palestinian civilians are being killed during the attacks, during particularly the extensive bombings, and that the Israeli military should be taking those civilians into account. Or either have said that the IDF does do that. So it's reflected in the first additional protocol to the Geneva Conventions for 1977, which is generally considered in this regard to reflect customary international law. And that is when launching an attack or before launching an attack, it is important, it is necessary to consider whether the expected damage to civilian objects or death or injury to civilians will be excessive to the anticipated legal advantage. Some of the arguments on international humanitarian law, and I also learned this distinction that when we're talking about international humanitarian law, we are talking about the laws of conflict. So only when you're in war. So we're not talking about the reasons of going to war. In international humanitarian law, you have a duty to distinguish between civilian and military targets, and there is a lot to do around proportionality. So there can be some civilian deaths as long as you can justify the military purpose behind the attack and also that it has a direct and concrete military advantage that you're looking for. Adil argues that clarity on the aim of the attack and then assessing the risk to civilians is the way to do it, which does not seem to be happening, he says. So I think it's very difficult and I think it's connected to this question of proportionality. So because proportionality is this very general and somewhat ambiguous standard, there's a very serious risk of motivated reasoning, of cognitive bias, of in-group, out-group bias. So if you're a military commander, you're already going to be inclined to overestimate the value of the military target and underestimate the significance of civilian harm because you want to win. And Kareem Khan himself put this very starkly in his press conference. In relation to every dwelling house, in relation to any school, any hospital, any church, any mosque, those places are protected unless the protective status has been mm -hmm. lost. And I want to be equally clear that the burden of proving that the protective status is lost rests with those who aim the gun, the missile, or the rocket in question. Now, Israel does have in-house lawyers in the Israeli Defense Force, and they provide advice to military commanders, and Israeli military really vaunts that and calls itself, I think, even the most moral army in the world. I've seen that quote bandied about. And we'll see what Ori says. Inside the Israeli Defense Forces, there is what's called the Military Advocate General's Corps, um, which are responsible for all things legal, essentially, um, in the military. The bread and butter of that department is indeed international humanitarian law, giving legal counsel to all levels of the Israeli armed forces, from non-commissioned officers up until the general chief of staff on issues related to the law of armed conflict. I should also add that in addition to that, there is the military school of law, which is also part of the military 
Advocate General's Corps, which provides training for various levels of command, all the way from non-commissioned officers up until quite senior officers. And they primarily actually provide training on matters relating to international law. And it is mandatory for courses at various levels in order to receive promotion in ranks to undergo such courses. And the last time that there was a really large Israeli incursion into Gaza was in 2014. And after that, there was some re-examination of the advice that the military lawyers within the IDF gave on shelling, for example. And they looked back to see if they got their decisions right under IHL. So I asked Adil, what does that tell us about how they operate? Israel did publish a a report on their IHL compliance. In some cases, it indicated the type of advice that was provided, but often it simply either asserted that uh, IHL was being followed generally or maybe referred to a particular incident and uh, stated that IHL had been followed there. So it didn't necessarily get into uh, how advice was delivered to whom, by whom, in what form, it was more concerned with the outcome and with the overall uh, legality of that campaign, according to the IDF. Ori says that part of how they analyze any specific situation is actually based on the way that the prosecutor for the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, the ICTY, looked at NATO bombings in Serbia and Montenegro as part of the campaign to make Serbia stop committing atrocities in Kosovo and intervening in Kosovo. And that was a paper that the ICTY prosecution put out on the decision or whether or not the ICTY should investigate those attacks. And in that context, prosecutor laid out the various issues and how different people will come to different conclusions, but ultimately reached the conclusion that the correct legal test for comparing the two values is that of the perspective of the reasonable military commander. So at the end of the day, when we compare or deal with proportionality, it's not so much the question for the legal advisor to answer, but rather the question uh, which is to be assessed from the perspective of a reasonable military commander. Now, I can imagine that many of the international law specialists who listen to this podcast would have a lot to say on that specific standard. I don't know myself, so I ask Adil whether this perspective of this, quote, reasonable military commander is really enough to be able to look at these battlefield decisions and to consider whether it's okay that some civilians die. As a lawyer, I would want to know what is that explanation? What is that justification? It's not enough that you be presented with the right considerations, that the commander be presented with the right considerations. It also matters why they make the decision that they do. How can they explain it? How is this attack supposed to prevent or disrupt the operations of the adversary? To what degree can the adversary quickly recover, replace whoever has been killed, and simply continue on? And if so, how could that justify a large number of civilian deaths? So as a lawyer, that is what I would want to know. I would want the military commander to explain to me why the military advantage is so great that it justifies foreseeable harm to civilians. It's interesting that we talk about this ICTY decision because I've seen it 
come up a lot in, in these discussions and a lot of people refer to it. But I also wonder what kind of legal weight it is because it is a decision by the prosecution and it's not rubber stamped by judges. So as a, as a legal precedent, I also wonder of the weight it has. It seems to be one of those things that people will use in their favor when they can, but I wonder how much weight it really has as a precedent. But that is probably something that will have to be tested in practice. And we don't see a lot of court cases about these bombardments. So really, this is something that the judges are going to have to decide on a case-by-case basis. Exactly. An investigation into each uh, specific event. I think with respect to the bombardment, there have been a number of airstrikes that seem legally inexplicable direct hits on ambulances, on markets. Is it possible that there was some military target nearby and the missile missed or malfunctioned? It's possible, uh, but it has happened frequently enough to justify an investigation to find out what exactly happened here. Beyond the bombing campaign, of course, there is the question of the humanitarian blockade, the lack of food, water, and fuel in Gaza. And even there, we get very different lenses through which lawyers see the rules of international humanitarian law. Ori argues that Israel is not the occupying power and therefore has no obligations to provide humanitarian relief. There's no obligation under international law to actively provide the population under the control of of the enemy Uh, humanitarian resources. But the position of the state of Israel is that there is no occupation. And I think the fact that tens of thousands of rockets have been fired from the Gaza Strip into Israel since Israel withdrew from 2005, let alone the fact that Hamas was able to build up a very strong military force uh, during this time, as was evident on the 7th of October. I think it's it's very difficult, if not impossible, to say that Israel actually exercises any effective control in the Gaza Strip. This is just a straight up blockage of food, of medicine, of clean water, and it's it's indefensible legally, ethically. And I really haven't seen anyone try to defend it. So I think that that one is straightforward. Yeah, as you can see, we've got very contrasting points of view, and we're putting these different points of view out, not because we necessarily agree or disagree with them, but to show that some of these analysis, to me at least, they really seem to depend on the basics, on exactly how you analyse the nature of occupation, on exactly how you analyse the broader war aims and any specific military advantage for any uh, specific action. Maybe by doing this, we can at least show some of the ways that will be argued in court eventually, we assume. If we go back to the military lawyers themselves, you saw something that stood out to you last week, Janet. Yeah, I mean, I think it got drowned a bit in all of the other different commentary, but I saw a warning statement from a couple of the United Nations Human Rights Special Rapporteurs, not the one on Palestine, I know that she was making various statements, but ones who look at human rights and counter-terrorism and the one who looks at the independence of lawyers and the judiciary. And jointly, they made a statement essentially warning Israeli lawyers in the Israeli Defence Forces explicitly about what responsibility they can bear potentially for the targeting decisions that their military commanders are making 
based on the IHL advice that they are giving those commanders. So uh, I caught up with Margaret Satterthwaite, the special rapporteur, and uh, asked her exactly why she was making this warning. Well, first, I just want to really clearly condemn the intentional targeting and massacre of civilians by Hamas. So I think it's really important to to start there. And Hamas does not have legal advisors to whom my mandate can speak. So I want to put this conversation into that context. So the first thing to say is Israel does have a very clear and robust system of lawyers who advise its military in all times, and especially in times of armed conflict. That actually is ramped up. Second, of course, Israel has the right and obligation to keep its citizens safe, but those horrific acts do not allow Israel to put the international humanitarian law and laws of armed conflict that bind it to one side. So in terms of the role of lawyers during war, it's important to say that there is an obligation under IHL, which has become a customary norm, that states have to make legal advisors available to advise military commanders. And they have to be at such a level where they can opine on how the law applies in a given situation. And that means they've got to put them in place in sufficient numbers, in sufficient training, um, and in contact with the kinds of commanders who are capable of then listening to the advice and carrying it out. So that's just an important background note. One very important thing in this specific context is that Israel clearly accepts this obligation. It has always, in recent conflicts, made legal advisors available to military commanders. And it has done so in quite a rigorous way. It has a large cadre of lawyers, some in the military advocate general corps, some as parts of other pieces of the the Israeli government structure. They have a professional independence in addition to advising those military um, commanders. And that means that they have an obligation to bring to this role the same ethical duty that they would bring to any other legal role. And so specifically, they need to take into account all of the circumstances in a given situation, and they need to give sufficient guidance that it allows those commanders to whom they're um, speaking to take that advice into account. So in other words, we all know the rules of humanitarian law, the principle, let's say, of distinction as just one example. It's a very vague rule to start with, but it's been made very, very concrete over time. And so it's important that these lawyers who are trained in the laws of armed conflict, who are familiar with case law, and who have studied other conflicts before, that they use all of that knowledge in a given context to provide advice that is well-reasoned and and actionable. In your your notes, your statement, you specifically warn lawyers who are playing that kind of role that they face potentially being charged themselves with war crimes if they are complicit in the commission of war crimes. So a couple of additional points there. Yes, we do that. Exactly. And I think that's important because The key point here is that lawyers must carry out their role with due diligence and with the utmost of the principle of humanity. And 
to say something again about Israeli um, lawyers advising the military, scholars, including Israeli scholars, have said that there's actually a particularly strong capacity on the part of those lawyers. One scholar actually called it a veto power. I don't know whether that's true or not, but it was found to be so by an Israeli scholar. So on the issue of complicity, the first advice we give and the the call that we make is to deny legal authorization to unlawful targeting, unlawful operations. So it's a preventive one. And that's really the main call here is to say, when undertaking your role, you must prevent foreseeable violations of the laws of war. And then, of course, we remind the lawyers that there is the possibility of accomplice liability under international humanitarian law. So without getting into the details of of which different tribunals have interpreted laws of uh, complicity and conspiracy, we can see pretty clearly, though, that lawyers could potentially become liable under international law for either green lighting an unlawful action or um, operation or potentially omitting to to prevent it. I'm wondering what you're specifically concerned about when you look at the conduct of the war. I've seen people discussing issues such as collective punishment, siege warfare, the massive bombardments, maybe with some indiscriminate killings of civilians, and of course, the forced expulsion. But I've also seen a lot of debate amongst all of those between scholars as to exactly what international humanitarian law says and what's allowed, like sieges are allowed, for example. Do you agree that there are nuances? So, of course, there are nuances, and and any lawyer would have to say yes to that question. At the same time, there are also very clear principles that have to be put into play at every moment. Now, we could go into a great deal of detail about the nature of this armed conflict. You know, there are even arguments about its nature in terms of being non-international versus international. There are conflicts about which laws of war bind Israel, given the, the ratifications that it has and has not made. However, I think if you look at the circumstances as a whole, there are some serious risks. And I'm not going to opine on what potential breaches have happened. But I think that it is manifest that there are risks of quite severe crimes. And so I think there is a risk that there's forced expulsion. There is a risk that there is indiscriminate targeting or indiscriminate use of weapons in civilian areas, which brings up the question of proportionality, of course. And I would say there, just to remind all of us of the numbers we're talking about, This morning, I got new numbers from a government source that said that there have been 7,000 Palestinians killed and 18,000 injured since the beginning of this conflict. And the vast majority of those are being attributed to airstrikes by the IDF. Now, of course, I can't verify that, but it's important to put things into that context. So those are some of the concerns. I do think that the withholding of aid, so the kind of blockade that has been placed on Gaza that already had, of course, a significant issues with just getting basic goods through. This is a very particular kind of blockade now because it's apparent that Israel has a capacity to truly close off this space in a way that even other kinds of siege 
for example, Mosul or other places where perhaps there have been attempts to cut off supplies. Here, it's very, very difficult, if not impossible, and this is really the question for these lawyers, to distinguish between the impacts on civilians and the military objective of degrading the opponent. And so I think that this issue of withholding water, of withholding food, fuel, things that civilians utterly need just for daily life, just simply to survive, raises a significant risk that this is turning into something much more severe. The opponent in this case is Hamas, which many governments describe as a terrorist organisation. We know, of course, they have a political wing as well who are basically outside the country. For non-lawyers, there's always this question of, is this not a a counter-terrorism operation where other rules are allowed? Why is it that we're trying to apply these war rules here? It's a great question. And it is one of those times when sometimes lawyers seem to lose the forest for the trees. I think the sort of public discussion of counterterrorism has unfortunately done us all a great harm, I think, certainly in the U.S. where I live, where there's a sense that once you're in a counterterrorism operation, because as a government, you may be bound by the laws of war, but you have a sense that your enemy isn't or they don't consider themselves to be and you manifestly see them utilizing crimes against civilians directly, really horrendous acts that would plainly be unlawful by really any standard. There's a sense that that maybe gives the government who's fighting some kind of license to push to one side um, international humanitarian law. And I think trying to learn some of the lessons of earlier conflicts on this front are super important. The laws of armed conflict apply anytime there is armed conflict. And so that's a very clear rule that is never pushed to one side. It, I think, behooves us to think about what kind of maybe moral discourse is being used or nationalist discourse or even just an emotional one, which is understandable. It's understandable that there are high emotions here in the wake of the October 7th attacks. But that's why we have law. We have law to check those emotions and especially to ensure that actions that will have lethal impact are carefully guided and rationally decided upon. And that applies any time that lethal force in the context of armed conflict is going to be used and any time that these specific forms of warfare methods of containment are being used, we have to look at those rules and and ensure that they're being applied properly. I'm wondering whether in the course of this conversation, is Israel being held to different standards from other militaries around the world? Did you think about making the similar kind of statement to Ukraine when they were fighting back or to Russia when they were invading? Why Israel that you're focused on? It's a great question. And one thing I will say is I've been in this mandate for only not even a year so far. I can't really answer to some of that. But I will say that the special procedures and and I certainly try very, very hard to be truly fair, to be focused on all grave violations under our mandate. 
And so my answer to you is that I hope I will be doing that and I, I endeavor to do that. I do think in addition and know from the volumes of work done by Israeli scholars, by Israeli military lawyers, that there is a very robust discussion in that country about these questions. And so directly speaking to them seems like a very appropriate thing to do at this moment. Unfortunately, Hamas does not have legal advisors to my knowledge. If they did, perhaps things would be quite different, let's just say. So it's important to be fair and to be balanced and not to be singling out Israel. I will do my best to do that. And I I believe that I am, in fact, carrying that out properly. And have you had any reactions from uh, the Israeli authorities particularly or, or anybody else? So not yet from the Israeli authorities, which I think we have to accept as quite understandable given what's happening right now. I would say that the main reaction has been, of course, on social media. And so there you can imagine we have had responses of varying sorts, but I would say for the most part, it has been a welcome statement. And I think pointing to the role of lawyers in war and in armed conflict in situations where militaries are being used, it really reminds us that this is a condition for the application of international humanitarian law, which was constructed precisely for these moments, and that we're not talking about a a moment where we are living in a law-free zone. We're talking about a situation where the law must be carried out, it must be applied, and it must be applied to protect civilians. And specifically now, given the, the nature of what's happening, to protect Palestinian civilians who are facing right now just an incredible set of difficult circumstances of danger and of risk of really having the most severe violations possibly committed against them. So that was Margaret Satterthwaite, UN Special Rapporteur, I think is her official title on the independence of lawyers and the judiciary, uh, explaining why she, together with one of her colleagues, had put out a statement warning Israeli lawyers working within the IDF about the work that they were doing. What did you think, Steph? I think it's very interesting Indeed, that she harks back to the U.S. and this idea that if you fight enemies who are not keeping to the rules, that maybe that you don't need to keep to the rules yourselves either. I see a lot of discussion on the Twitter, you know, everybody who now thinks they're Twitter experts on international law. There's a lot of chatter about Hamas being non-state actors and things like that. And that's the same argument that the U.S. used to uh, open Guantanamo Bay. But in the end, that was shot down by the U.S. Supreme Court and decided that the Geneva Convention applies. So many people have heard about half of this. And then there's also within the legal community still these arguments about it. So I think it's, it is very interesting. The fact, indeed, as she says herself, that she is calling out Israeli lawyers uh, because they are actively participating in it. And indeed, the way she said, Hamas does not seem to have legal advisors. So she can't really call them out, although she does very obviously uh, condemn those attacks. That also shows the difficulty that you're in in the position that she has. I think we all have to find a balance to say something about this is how the majority of people seem to think that international humanitarian law works. Here is what the courts say. Here is what other people say. The issue that uh, that kind of strikes me out of it is 
that we still have a lot of people who we engage with who think that law is the answer and that if we refer back to the absolute fundamental legal principles, we will get some difference, some change in the end, and we'll get some accountability. But I think there's also a lot of other people who just don't see that. And then there's a lot of other people who, even within that group who believe in the law, actually disagree with each other fundamentally on what the law says. So for me, it's still a very confusing situation. I think I do have some clarity on what I think is going on, but I am less sure at the end of putting this podcast together as to whether law is the answer and uh, our sort of life mission of reporting on accountability issues, whether that really is the answer to this um, feels somehow at the end, okay, in the end, there's going to have to be a political solution rather than a legal one and definitely rather than a military one. Absolutely. I think that is the key. I think the key is to not overstate the importance of the law. Also, because you would like the law to be very unequivocal and very clear. This is allowed and this isn't allowed. And it turns out that there's all these nuances and that it really, you have to look on a case-by-case basis and there's lots of outrage about this being clearly this or that being clearly that. But there's a reason as we said before, that international judges at these tribunals that we follow took years and years to make these decisions and then they get appealed and then the, those get tweaked. It's not as black and white as we would all like for our own ease of mind. I think I had abandoned the idea that law is the answer. I think I do think that accountability has an important place, but it's always contingent on political will and the political processes that go around there because accountability itself cannot be enough. Well, we'll carry on exploring the nuances. Indeed. Speak to you again soon. Speak soon. Bye-bye. This was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast, created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with justiceinfo.net, an independent site covering justice effort for mass violence. Music is by audionautics.com. And you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on asymmetricalhaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating and spread the word.